The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the word of the Lord. We don't know how old Jeremiah was when he felt called to preach, teach, and be a prophet. We do know when it was, in the year 627. That means it was exactly 95 years after the Assyrians had swooped southward across the ten northern tribes called Israel and had completely decimated them, so conquered and destroyed them that they were replaced by other people. The ten northern tribes simply disappeared as a separate people. So 95 years later, God placed it on Jeremiah's heart to tell the king in Judah that the same fate was about to befall them if he did not lead the people in meaningful reform. He had tried for six years without having much result when the priest decided to take seriously what Jeremiah was saying. One morning they came rushing into the king's chamber saying that the night before they were cleaning out a closet in the temple and had found a fifth scroll of Moses. That scroll had never been mentioned before. Scholars believe the ink was still wet on it when this priest delivered it that morning. But they told the king it was a scroll of Moses, knowing that if he believed so, he would take it seriously. And he did. Deuteronomy is so named Deuteronomo's second time around for the law, if you would. It repeats the story of Moses It gives the Ten Commandments. It begs the people to keep covenant with God. Josiah took it very seriously, attempted meaningful reform for more than a dozen years. And then the Egyptians swept up from the south, entered into battle with Josiah and his forces at Megiddo. Josiah was killed. One of his sons was anointed king. The Egyptians didn't like him. So they captured him and swept him away to Egypt. A second son of Josiah was made king who promised to pay tribute to the Egyptians. Just four years later, the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq, decided they would like to have that tribute money. So they swept into battle against the Egyptians, defeated them, and took over Judah as a province of their own. But 18 years later, were not happy about the way tribute was coming to them. So they surrounded the city of Jerusalem, laid siege to it. When the people were running out of food and water, they breached the walls. They ransacked the temple, burned it. They ransacked the royal palace, burned it, tumbled down the great stones of the wall protecting the city, and burned the gates off their hinges. We know it had been 40 years since Jeremiah had first been called He had to have been in his late 60s or early 70s when he sees Jerusalem in flames. And he writes these words. In the short term, pessimism. He saw the Babylonians kill every son of the the Israeli king and then gouge out the eyes of the king and take him and all of his people. They could round up, force marching back to Babylon. That was the vision, except these are the words Jeremiah wrote. The days are surely coming, says the I am who I am. 
when I will fulfill the promise. The promise, in Hebrew, literally, the good news. The days are surely coming, says the I am who I am, when I will fulfill the good news. We're still waiting, are we not? The governances of this world are so terrible in so many different places. Number one, you know that Gail and I have been to Berlin on three different occasions, and I'm still very interested in what's happening in that great city. Just now, there is a special exhibit in the Zeughaus. Uh, the Zeughaus was one of those buildings where Hitler was in 1943 when there was a serious attempt on his life. Uh, tried to assassinate him. If they'd been successful in 1943, millions of lives would have been spared the next two years. They were not successful. But now there's an exhibit there of how Germany could possibly have come to choose an Adolf Hitler. Young Germans today do not understand it, and they keep asking, how could our grandparents have done this? How could they have done this? I had a Jewish professor who had been dismissed from his professorship along with his wife's being dismissed from her professorship at the University of Berlin because they were Jews. He was my history professor, my German professor, and he said Germany was so punished at the end of World War I. They were so poor. He said inflation was unbelievable. One day you needed a Deutsche Mark to buy a loaf of bread. The next day you needed two. The next day you needed four. And the next day you needed eight. And it came to a point where you needed a wheelbarrow full of Deutsche Marks to buy a loaf of bread. And along came a guy who could make a speech. He could make a speech that moved the masses and my old professor said, so the intelligentsia decided, well, let's elect him. He can get people's heads up. And four years later, we'll vote him out and elect someone else. The only problem was that four years later, there was no election. He had abolished all elections and was sweeping eastward. Yes, 1938, annexed Austria, moved on toward Poland. A British historian has his own take on this. He said, The road to Auschwitz was built on hate, paved by indifference. Not enough people cared. Not enough people cared. Number two, this good news... This good news is about a righteous branch to spring up for David. In our own country at that same time, we were having difficulties, not nearly so difficult as those in Germany, but the Great Depression swept around the world. And I've told you that when my mother and father were married, right at the end of that Great Depression, 1939, they were married, and my father told me that he walked three miles to work at a basket factory making bushel baskets. He worked 12 hours and walked home three miles for 50 cents. 50 cents for all 12 hours, you understand. He had one pair of pants, one shirt. My mother washed these sweat-soaked uh, pants and shirt 
and ironed them dry so that he would have something to wear to work the next day for 50 cents more. At the Guggenheim in New York, right now, there is an exhibit about that period in this country when some of our big cities had 50% unemployment, when people who really wanted to work could not find work, who lined up long lines for a cup of soup. Arturo Mortini, an Italian-American, has some meaningful paintings done during that period. But the reviewer that I read said there are really two that sort of capture the spirit of the 1930s here. One of Mr. Mortini's paintings is of a fellow he calls the drinker. He's decided things are so bad he will try to anesthetize himself until things get better. And so he just drinks and drinks. Whatever he can get his hands on, he drinks. And another of Mr. Martini's paintings he calls The Stars. It's a really dark night, the Great Depression. But the darker the night, the more brilliant the stars seem to be. But this particular reviewer of the exhibit said, those who knew Mr. Martini said he was a devout Roman Catholic Christian and that he's really saying these people with uplifted faces are looking beyond the stars to the one who created the heavens and the earth. Seeing only the dark, seeing beyond the dark. Number three, and this one will execute justice and righteousness. What's fair and what's right? Everybody wants what's fair and what's right. What's fair and what's right for everybody. And why do we settle for less? Why ever have we settled for less? Jeremiah believes that Almighty God is watching over all of us, watching, observing, noting, how we're living this out. I'm sure you've read quite a bit about the Chilean miners who were rescued. All 33 of them were saved from that mine after being confined for more than two long months. Various people have been writing about it, and I'm sure we'll see book and movie produced as well. Theodore Dalrymple had a big, long article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, his take on the whole thing. He said, there are many philosophers who tell us that the veneer of civilization is very thin and that when people are under stress, it takes very little for them to become raging animals again. So why didn't that happen in that mine way down in the earth in Chile? He said, for one reason, these men were all men of faith. They weren't perfect men, but they all came from a religious background. You remember Viktor Frankl, who survived Auschwitz, wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, I discovered a man could endure almost any how for living if he had a sufficient why. A why. These men chose the oldest among them to be their leader. He set out a little place in the cave there where a cross was put up. A man could go to pray. If he wanted someone to pray with him, that could be arranged. He stated right from the beginning, no one will eat until all eat. He stayed till last. He was number 33 to come out of the mine. 
But Mr. Dalrymple says, I think there was something else going on here, and that is, from the moment communication was first established with the miners, they were told, the whole world is watching. The whole world is watching and praying, watching and praying, and they knew it was so. And Dalrymple says, you see, social pressure can make us sometimes yield to bad behavior, but social pressure can also make us yield to good behavior. If we feel there are enough good people who are watching, we're more likely to do the good than the bad. And if we believe, as people of faith, that Almighty God certainly is watching, it's supposed to affect the way we behave. Number four is very specific. Judah. Jerusalem. Judah and Jerusalem, safe and secure. These two, the country, the city, the country and the city. We Gentiles believe God is concerned about all countries and all cities and all people. He wants every country to be safe and all cities to be secure and all his children to know justice and righteousness. Did you read the big article in the Tulsa World about Harriet Sherber? I thought it was wonderful. Harriet Sherber has lived in our city for many years. She and her husband have been here. She was a little girl, 15 years old. Our Abigail just turned 15 last week. Harriet was 15 in Vienna, Austria, when the Nazis annexed her country. And the next morning she said, we Jews had lost all of our rights. We were not allowed to go to school. We were not allowed to go to our businesses. She said, the Nazis came to our house, grabbed hold of my mother, and dragged her into the heart of the city along with other Jewish women stuck a brush in her hands and told her to brush the pavements in the town square on her hands and knees. She said, we had followed screaming and yelling to stand there and watch your mother so humiliated, so mistreated, was near unbearable. It wasn't long after that fateful year, 1938, when Kristallnacht occurred, November 9. November 9, when Jewish synagogues were broken into and set fire, when Jewish businesses were torched and burned and raided, she said the next morning, a call, a frantic call at our house that the Nazis were coming down the street taking all the Jewish men. And my father told us, hurry, we rushed up into the highest part of our house and tried to hide. We heard the knocking at the door. There was a long time. And then the truck drove away. It was only later that we discovered it was our Christian maid who offered them a cup of tea and then herself to convince them there was no one else at home. She said, my family made it to Switzerland. And from there, we were able to get to a port and a ship 
and sail into New York Harbor. I've never forgotten the Statue of Liberty, she said. What a beautiful, beautiful sight. This Statue of Liberty. She met a man in this country. They've been married 70 years. She said, this is a wonderful place, the United States of America. Jeremiah said, a descendant of David will one day come and make things right. We believe he did come. But he didn't choose to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, nor even the throne in Rome. Instead, the kingdom he talked about would be in the hearts and minds of others. The hearts and minds of others. We call our government democracy. From the Greek, demos kratien, the people rule. God says to you and me, you haven't gotten it right yet. But two years from now, you get to vote again. And four years from now, you get to vote again. And six years from now, you get to vote again. Come on now. Come on now. You can get this right.